Okay, everybody, welcome back to our special Life is Sweet reading series where John reads Clearing the Plains. John reads a nonfiction book, uh, which he is obligated to do because he's told everyone that he's going to do it. And so this is the way that, uh, that I'm going to read this book. Okay, we, are, we did the introduction last time bit of a background on the book and the author, uh, read through the forewords and the introductions. And now we're starting on chapter one, uh, today. The introduction actually has really good little summaries of each of the chapters in it. Um, so if you want to know what the chapter is about, you can just quickly zoom back to the, uh, introduction and, find it there. Uh, chapter one is all about uh, indigenous societies uh, before the, the arrival of Europeans. So specifically indigenous societies on the plains and their health uh, before the arrival of Europeans. Uh, the main thing that comes into play um, is climate, how climate affects that climate and mass migration. Uh, how climate affects mass migration and how that affects health. So, yeah, first off, I guess the things that I'm thinking about in this chapter are how does, since we're living in a period of uh, unprecedented climate change right now, and we are have seen and are aware of uh, mass migrations, mass movements of people um, f- all around the world, uh, say from South America up to uh, the Mexico-Texas border, um, as an example. Um, these like mass movements of, of people uh, have happened have happened before. So what uh, how do things like this happen? How does climate drive people moving large distances? Um, going straight ahead to, Chapter one, page one, indigenous, indigenous health, environment, and disease before Europeans. Uh, right on page one, he gives an estimate of the population numbers for indigenous people pre-contact. Um, he quotes American scholar Henry Dobbins, who gave uh, his estimate to be uh, 90 million people. Quite a bit. I think that's roughly three times the current population of Canada. Of course, that's 90 million people continent-wide. Um, so it's a significant amount that this is a, an occupied place. People are living here. Loads, loads of them. Um, even if that's on the high side, um, seems like people, people have differing opinions on this. Uh, 90 million seems to be on the high side of, uh, of scholarly opinion. But even so, even if it's half that, that's still a lot. Or a third of that, that's still a lot. That's still the population of Canada. Roughly 35-ish million, I think we're at right now. Something like that. Um, so this is in the first paragraph. He says that... Uh, um, that populations could have declined as much as 95% as 
previously unseen microbes literally decimated large and vulnerable populations. So that's 95% of the existing indigenous population uh, wiped out by uh, old world microbes before, this is before most of these communities had even uh, been contacted or experienced their first European human person. Think about the scale of that. This is this is a pandemic. This is like a, I don't know what sort of scale you could compare it to. Worse than the Black Death, probably. Way worse. Although, like the land, uh, like was was occupied, the um, indigenous population had experienced like massive, uh, massive, mass death, basically before um, before the majority of Europeans. Uh, arrived. This, these are the microbes coming, the diseases uh, that the first uh, Europeans brought along uh, with them. Um, he acknowledges that uh, the limits of archaeology and the passage of centuries will keep us from ever going beyond informed speculation about the size of the indigenous population on a continental scale. There's no way to know. Too much time has passed. Um, these, uh, these people, these, these cultures didn't leave behind like a whole lot that's going to exist in the archaeological record, it sounds like. Jill, uh, who is with me and just slightly out of frame, uh, has brought up, like, does he mention oral history? And he doesn't bring up oral history, not at least in this first uh, paragraph. Maybe not in this chapter, we'll, we'll see. So maybe that's a bit of a, a blind spot too. Anywho, I think the point is, like, there were a lot of people here. Um, another thing that he wants to do in the second paragraph is squash the, um, the racist, noble, sav savage stereotype that North America and the and the people here were living in a utopia in uh, these like idealistic uh, societies where nothing bad ever happened and everyone was innocent and, and unspoilt and and majestic and and good. No, these are ordinary people living in an ordinary ordinary world, um, the same as the rest of us here. So they had disease. Uh, the second paragraph um, says uh, that it's been shown beyond a doubt that tuberculosis was endemic to the New World, present long before the arrival of Europeans. So there are there were New World diseases or North American uh, diseases that were here, and this wasn't a conflict-free world. In the third paragraph, on page two or third paragraph total second paragraph on page two he mentions an example of the community of crow creek south dakota um, sometime after the turn of the 14th century 500 people already suffering from malnutrition were killed and mutilated their community burned around their bodies and their bones left exposed to scavengers a new village was built by the invaders on top of the killing grounds so this is an example of a wanton massacre 
of suffering people, um, people who uh, were suffering from malnutrition. So like there was, there was a famine, there was malnutrition, there was disease, there were, there was conflict, there was, there was massacres, there were carnage. But um, I think the thing to keep in mind is we, this, this is everybody, this is human, this is human history. Uh, And what causes people, what causes people to act like that? What causes malnutrition? What causes disease? What causes people to, to uh, slaughter innocent people? That is a thing that, that happens and will continue to happen. So one of the things that can lead to a scenario like this happening is when a group of people are forced to leave their original home uh, due to lack of resources there and then come into contact with people uh, in the place that they're settling uh, and then a conflict over the resources there happens. And then uh, in the in this case, what caused the migration of these people was a change in the climate. So what, what was the climate like at that time? This was something that people call, um, before the 13th century, um, there was something called the climat- what people call the climactic optimum, the medieval warm period, the medieval climate anomaly, the neo Atlantic climatic episode. Bottom of page two, he says, in, in North America, 400 years of good weather reshaped the natural and human landscapes of the continent. So it's 400, 400 years of good weather, basically, in North America and, and Europe. Um, good weather is causing people to move around. Good grazing, grazing lands for crops, agricultural or grazing, grazing land for What's the opposite of crops? Livestock. livestock. Good grazing land for livestock. Good land to plant crops in. Four hundred years of that. Good times. People are like move, moving around to take advantage of uh, of some of the uh, the new land that's available, like in the north, where the the ice in the Arctic is sort of uh, receding a little bit. Uh, this is around the time you get. Uh, Icelanders, um, the Norse, uh, sailing around and establishing settlements in Greenland and Newfoundland and uh, a couple other places around the coast of North America, too. Um, There are science people who think that the Norse were in Greenland before the ancestors of the Inuit were. Uh, I think it's... um, I think it's uh, reasonable to think that the Norse and the um, ancestors of the Inuit arrived in Greenland at like roughly the roughly the same time. Um, but the interesting thing is, uh, the Norse left, uh, but the Inuit uh, are still there. So why why did that happen? Why did uh, why did the Norse have to leave? Greenland, and why did the Inuit uh, stay? On page three, he says, in the Halcyon, is that the how you'd say it? Halcyon? Halcyon? I'm not used to saying these words out loud. 
I'm mostly just used to saying them in my head, and that's uh, that's a bit of a different thing. <coughs> Excuse me. So between eight eight hundred and twelve hundred CE, Halcyon. Report from Jill says Halcyon. Societies from the Atlantic to the Dakotas revolutionized their food base as they added the horticultural triumvirate of corn, beans, and squash to, the, to their diets. That's something that I'm familiar with as a gardener called the Three Sisters method. So this is horticulture that's moving from the uh, moving into the plains. So whether there's, we'll find out if there's cultivation happening or if it's just like a trade in vegetables. So it's kind of interesting. Agriculture is moving around. Yeah, there we are introduced to a city called Cahokia. Um, forgive my pronunciation. Uh, a city of as many as 20,000 people in 1100 CE. So a population that, that large, uh, a population center that large wouldn't have existed in North America until Philadelphia at the end of the, the 18th century, which is pretty interesting. Uh, I looked up what some other cities around the world, their estimated populations would have been around that time. Apparently, Cahokia, uh, could have, the population of Cahokia could have gotten up to like over 30,000. So Cahokia was the largest and most influential urban settlement of the Mississippian culture, which developed advanced societies across much of what is now the central and southeastern United States, beginning more than a thousand years before European contact. Today, the Cahokia Mounds are considered to be the largest and most complex archaeological site north of the great pre-Columbian cities in Mexico. Some estimates are Cahokia had 30,000 people by the 13th century, and that puts it at the roughly the same population size as London at that time. Uh, for comparison, in European cities, uh, Rome had around 40,000 people, Paris 110,000 people, quite a bit larger than London or Rome. Berlin, 2,400 people, 2,400, which is a little tiny place. And then outside of, uh, outside of Europe, we've got like behemoths like Cairo, 200 to 250,000. Baghdad, 250,000. Hangzhou, China. 250,000 to a million. Angkor, A-N-G-K-O-R, it's in what is now Cambodia, 150,000 to 650,000. Um, I guess it shows like the scale of these these cities. The European cities were tiny compared to um, the cities in the Middle East, in the Islamic Empire, and in Southeast Asia. And uh, this North American indigenous city, Cahokia, was on par population-wise, with major European cities. So Cahokia was uh, situated around the confluence of the Mississippi, Missouri, and Ohio rivers, which makes it the primo spot for trade in North America. Those three rivers, if you have access to those three rivers, you basically have access to... Uh, a, almost the entire uh, interior of what's now the United States and large, large portions of Canada. 
Um, so this is this is a major major site. Like's mentioned in the book, there are mounds still uh, still remaining from that site. You can go visit them. I think it's in uh, Indiana. No, Missouri. I don't know. It's directly to the east of what is now St. Louis. Cahokia. Illinois, apparently. That would be a fun place to... I would like to go visit there. There are other mound sites around. There's like a... There's a mound site in Minnesota, in St. Paul, actually. That's a city park. It's St. Louis. St. Louis. East St. Louis. East St. Louis. Yeah, just over the border. Just over the border. Yep. So people are growing stuff, making stuff. They're bringing it to this major trade center at Cahokia. And this is where, at the bottom of page three, we have our first uh, mention of Manitoba here, which is where we live, um, the boundary waters region of the interlakes, to the interlakes of Manitoba. Um, I guess I should read the whole section. Uh from Cahokia and other centers near the confluence of the Ohio, Mississippi, and Missouri rivers, farming spread quickly to Iowa, Wisconsin, and Minnesota, where it was adopted by the Siouan-speaking Oneota people. Farther north, the addition of corn-based horticulture to hunting and wild rice harvesting propelled the expansion of a people known to archaeologists as Black Duck from the Boundary Waters region to the interlakes of Manitoba to the shores of Lake Superior, where they lived alongside the Laurel people, of the Canadian Shield. Yeah, reading along further. Around 1000 CE, a hybrid group called the Rainy Lake Composite developed from their Laurel and Black Duck neighbors. The new group might have been the ancestors of the historical Anishinaabe. So, yeah, the Anishinaabe, I think, is the largest um, indigenous group in that, that, that we have in Manitoba. So that's of local interest. Uh, to the west, the ancestors of the Siouan-speaking Mandan and Hidatsa were establishing, quote, semi-sedentary, end quote, villages in North and South Dakota along the Missouri River, where they added gardening to their traditions of hunting and gathering. So um, these pre, these people groups on the plains, they're hunting, hunting and gathering, and they're also gardening. They're taking the, uh, they're taking up horticulture here. The most northerly of these villages was only 200 kilometers south of the 49th parallel. 49th parallel being the boundary between Canada and the United States uh, on the prairies presently. The horticultural wave that swept across the eastern half of the continent uh, stopped abruptly at the Missouri villages. That's around, I, that's the, around the Cahokia area, I'm imagining. And it stopped Specifically there, he says, not due to climate reasons. There wasn't a climate reason why horticulture didn't become super popular west of west of there. And I think he goes on to say that um, the, re- the reason is people there, you ha- they had the bison, so they didn't really need to take up agriculture. The bison provided every everything that they that they really needed. Prehistoric populations on the Canadian plains, rather than small nomadic band-level societies, were large, sophisticated, 
tribally organized communities made up as many uh, made up of as many as a thousand individuals working communally to produce an almost industrial level of resource exploitation. So these are large a thousand people in a group is large. My town where I grew up, Niverville, uh, had around a thousand people when I was a kid. Um, a thousand people is co- is complex, so that's that's pretty big. You get to that point, you can get sophisticated uh, organize community organization. You can you can get people specializing in things. You can extract surpluses. Um, you are in business, <laughs> basically. I'll just keep on reading because uh, it's interesting. These large groups provided enough labor to drive herds over large distances and then kill and process them, creating large surpluses of food that were traded, often for corn and other crops, or stockpiled for future use. Food surpluses gave communities time to pursue quests for more than just food, developing formal institutions within them based on age, gender, or expertise. Instead of roaming the plains in search of food, these communities were semi-sedentary, remaining in place for as long as six months at a time, alternating between river valley complexes and the open plains. Because these communities were pedestrian, with only dogs as beasts of burden, the distance between winter and summer residences was probably not more than a walk of a few days. So that's really fascinating. That is a really great description of how people... Uh, would have been living here um, here on the Canadian prairies in places like Winnipeg, where I live, um, before European contact. So, like, big people groups with specializations, semi-sedentary, moving from uh, the river valleys to up on the open plains. And that's probably because the river valleys flood. We're here in, in the Red River Valley. It floods often massively you don't you're not setting up a permanent uh residence on a floodplain although lots of people like to build their houses on floodplains right now (laughs) but not the smartest thing to do uh historically so you go you go down into your floodplain your floodplain has the good soil so you can have your gardens there do a little bit of uh, cultivating if you want to. You don't. You don't really need to. Doesn't really sound like it was a huge, huge thing for for these people. But on the plains is where your main source of food and your goods, your clothing, your tools live, and that's the bison. You and the bison. You are. Uh, your. I don't know. Bros, siblings. You're the <laughs> relatives. <laughs> you are intricately and uh, it connected. It's you are inexorable. Your life depends on their life. That's that's what you're that's what you're all about. Further down, page four, um, he mentions that there's uh, only two distinct technological traditions present on the Canadian plains before. Uh, 1000 CE, that is the Besant and Avonlea phases. And he mentions that there is evidence of trade between them. So mutual, mutual aid, mutual support, peaceful trade. 
Uh, eventually, there's a a third people group emerges called the Old Women's People Group in southern Alberta, and they gradually replace the Avonlea in this in that region. In around 1300, climate changed swiftly, and it's changed so so swiftly. People were not prepared for it. When climate changes swiftly, there's usually some sort of uh, catastrophic, cataclysmic event. And for that, uh, the most likely scenario for that is volcanism, so massive volcano eruptions. Um, he mentions one in 1259. When I was looking, there wasn't uh, there was a massive volcanic eruption in 1257. I couldn't find anything specifically for 1259. The Samalis explosion in 1257 on the island of Lombok in what is now in Indonesia. Samalis, along with the QA eruption in the 1450s and the Tambora in 1815, was one of the strongest cooling events in the last millennium, even more so than at the peak of the Little Ice Age. And the reason that volcanic eruptions can change the climate, can cool the climate, is because when they blast off, Piles of dust and ash and particulate matter gets thrown into the atmosphere, literally uh, shades the surface of the earth from the sun's rays and cools it. So it's like a, sh a giant umbrella canopy. The sun, the radiation from the sun can't get through the uh, particulate matter from the explosion as well as it did before. So that's how volcanism uh, cools the climate. This eruption introduces what is known mostly as the Little Ice Age, a period of quick cooling, I think mostly in the Northern Hemisphere. So in, in the Little Ice Age, we're talking about the Norse settling in Greenland. During the warm period in the Little Ice Age, uh, that's when they abandoned Greenland. And uh, shipping lanes are freezing over in the north, Crops are failing. You get things like uh, the Thames River in London freezing over, things like that. Um, so it's a it's a big event, and that lasted also for several hundred more years. Um, some consider like the Little Ice Age to have been in effect until uh, the industrial era era kicked off. So like until like the early twentieth century. Uh, when the temperatures started to rise again. So that's kind of interesting. On page five, uh, he mentions that uh, going back to the the Norse in Greenland, that uh, the, the Norse people in Greenland, their rigid adherence to unsustainable like European farming practices like led to their led to their uh, downfall, their death or abandonment of their settlements. Um, it seems like that had something to do with it. Um, I think there's more evidence that they, along with the ancestors of the Inuit people uh, there at the time, the Inuit people, the pre-Inuit people, they survived. They had adapted to the changing climate. There's evidence that the Norse people also tried to adapt. Uh, they did more uh, hunting of like marine mammals, uh, fish, seal hunting, like that sort of thing. They switched to, they tried to make uh, their clothing out of animal skin rather than strictly relying on wool and sheep farming, uh, that kind of thing. But for whatever 
reason, uh, they weren't able to make that transition or they weren't that invested in making that transition. One of the two. Um, a lot of them, like, I think a lot of them left, went back to Iceland. I think part of um, Jill's chiming in here. Um, for the, the Norse, um, part of their economic reason for being there was harvesting, like, walrus ivory and um, the discovery by Europeans, uh, or, like, Europeans finding out that elephants existed in Africa and that they were a source of ivory cut into um, the Norse trade and the reason that being in Greenland was profitable. They weren't really there to settle. They were there more to exploit the natural reason. Exactly. Um, I don't know if you heard Jill there, but her point was uh, the Norse weren't in Greenland to settle long term. They were there on a business enterprise. They were being entrepreneurial. They were there to harvest uh, walrus ivory. They were there to harvest uh, ivory, basically, and then ship it back to Europe. And their um, their product, their good, their commodity, ivory, uh, became less valuable in the in the market because uh, other sources of, uh, sources of ivory were becoming available to Europe at that time, like elephants from Africa, um, walrus from Russia, something like that. The Baltic, I don't know, from the from the east. Anyway, their uh, their business reasons for being there uh, dried up, so they didn't really have a lot of uh, incentive to stay. Um, also, as the climate changed, their um, the time where their sea routes were navigable, navigable, navigatable, navigable, navigable uh, were becoming shorter and less. Uh, reliable. So they started losing a lot of ships, a lot of boats, a lot of people were lost at sea. It Basically, they started turning, um, um, running massive deficits and were losing people at the same time. So you, that happens, you're going to pull up stakes, you're not going to stick around very long. Whereas like the pre-Inuit people, they were there to live. Um, they weren't going anywhere. So that's a bit of an interesting difference. And a bit of foreshadowing for uh, the next group of uh, Europeans that are going to come along <laughs> to North America, too. Why were they also, why did they also come? Continuing, continuing on page five, um, far to the south, societies that had grown and prospered with the adoption of corn and related crops were especially hard hit. Some, like the horticultural villages of New York State and southern Quebec, came together after several generations of conflict and privation to form the League of the Iroquois, a sophisticated system of governance and diplomacy that continues to function today. The League of the Iroquois, still around today. Um, so we're talking history, we're also talking present. And it's interesting that this, this is a response to privation and climate change and uh, deprivation. One is conflict, <laughs> One is death. One is people groups coming together in a new type of society, um, making something new to better ensure their collective survival. Uh, fans of uh, things like the U.S. Constitution or whatnot like to point to uh, this is that the U.S. Constitution was based on like the League of the Iroquois. Uh, maybe some wishful thinking there, but um, that's an interesting development.
And of course, going back to revisiting the city of Cahokia here, this is when the city of Cahokia disintegrated, declined, uh, was abandoned. That whole region was abandoned. Trade routes broke down and people were not able to sustain themselves in the same way that they were during the warm period. I'll just read from the bottom of page 5. Soon, Cahokia itself was abandoned. By the 1450s, portions of the American bottoms, the heartland of what had been an almost continental system of trade and ideology, were so depopulated that they were referred to in the archaeological literature as the vacant quarter. Violence undoubtedly accompanied the failure of the cities of the region as the masses, including those whose labor had built the massive mound complexes by hand, lost faith in the religious elite who are unable to maintain control in the face of repeated large-scale crop failure. That is pretty much as apocalyptic as apocalyptic as it gets. Climate downturn leading to crop failure, leading to breakdown of trade networks, supply chains, leads to people turning on the religious elite and eventually abandoning their sites completely. You can see that happening uh, in other places <laughs> throughout history. It's, uh, it's an old story. It was these events that triggered a, a wave of migration from Texas to Minnesota. As whole societies turned west in search of refuge. This is when the massacre at the Crow Creek Village happened. So these are the people from the east now turning west as, their, as climate declined and their way of life became unsustainable. Their mass... There's a mass migration west onto the prairies and the plains where the uh, bison hunting people are. Uh, one of these peoples was uh, on page six, the Mortlatch people. He says the Mortlatch migration was the most significant intrusion of people onto the Canadian plains during this period. These people, the Mortlatch people, were the, the Siouan ancestors of the historical Nakoda or Assiniboine. And these are people groups that... Uh, that existed at contact and still exist. There's people known in Manitoba as the Vickers Focus, a people group who, who probably came from the scattered village com complex further south around what's now St. Louis. They were experts in their craft, intensively planting maize in optimal locations with good growing conditions along the Red River and in the Tiger Hills south of Brandon. <laughs> In western Manitoba, they persisted for decades until a sudden, drastic cold spike during the Little Ice Age, probably caused by the cataclysmic eruption of Mount Kuwe in 1453-1454, and they were forced to flee the region. This is interesting for us in Manitoba, so we have like a people group moving, coming from farther south, moving up here to the north, bringing with them their agricultural heritage, their planting uh, they're planting corn and, and things like that in optimal growing conditions here in the Red River where we're living and in the Tiger Hills uh, south, of, south of Brandon. So there's an agricultural tradition here and they were also forced to leave or um, assimilate with other groups because their agricultural way of life uh, wasn't sustainable due to the climate. Again, he, on page seven, uh, he re reiterates that the vast majority of these people moving west, I'll read from the top of page seven, with the exception of a proto-historic group at, known as the One Gun, which is discussed in the next chapter, uh, Besant, Avonlea, Old Woman's, Mortlatch, 
and Vickers Focus represent all major prehistoric populations of the Canadian Plains. All were large-scale, tribally organized societies, either immigrants from the eastern woodlands or profoundly influenced by them. And many characteristics of these large communities survived until well into the historical period. Before the devastating smallpox epidemic of the 1780s, fur trader Alexander Henry described a Nakota Assiniboine village in the parklands. The parklands is a major ecosystem here in Manitoba. It's like a transition zone between the grasslands and the boreal forest. So it's like a mixed forest with deciduous and conifer trees. And uh, the parklands region, I think we think of it sort of as like the riding mountain region of Manitoba, sort of like west, north, uh, around like what's Dauphin now. So I think that's kind of the area that he's describing. And so 200 tents with two to four families. So that's like between 800 and 1600 people. So that's like a big, a big town. It'd be a big town for that part of Manitoba uh, even today. Big enough that we have public institutions. We have a town crier we, uh, to uh, get uh, the chief's orders passed around uh, the village. And we, got sold, and we got the police to keep order. So large, complex, organized societies. Peacekeepers rather than police. Police in a different way than we think about them now. Yeah, Jill's suggesting peacekeepers rather than police. Probably better to say peacekeepers. He, it's described as soldiers. Soldiers to enforce the chief's orders. Um, it's important when we're reading Alexander Henry's words, the words of uh, 18th century fur trader, when he's saying things like town crier and, and soldiers, that these are analogs to what he is familiar with. Um, what the community interpreted these roles as would be different. And of course, uh, police is a loaded term for indigenous communities for very good reason. And I'm sure we'll learn about why that is as we go along in the book. Uh, perhaps it should be a loaded term for the rest of us as well. So these are complex societies. They're using complex strategies to manage the resources available to them uh, in their landscape. We're talking to civilization here. They're using tools to manage vast areas of land, um, one of which is fire. For fire, basically, they're using it uh, to uh, direct the movements of the bison herds. They're using fire to direct the bison into their regularly used uh, killing grounds, uh, buffalo jumps, pounds, that sort of thing. And then in the springtime, they're using fire to herd the bison, to direct the bison to areas of new growth. So there's new, new food. So they're managing the bison herds. They're managing the bison. They're also managing their, their water supply. Um, being on the plains, it's a drought-prone region, um, even during the, the Little Ice Age. There's, uh, it's relatively dry. It's, very, it's quite dry, actually. Uh, there's not a lot of uh, free-running water around, so you need to know, you need to have regular access to safe uh, drinking water. And to do that, they uh, practiced the um, intentional 
abstention from hunting the beaver. So they didn't hunt the beaver. The beaver built dams across streams, creating reservoirs where there would be a sustainable and reliable source of water, even during periods of prolonged drought. We're experiencing a, a drought here uh, on the prairies this year, or for the last couple of years anyway, as we speak. So the pre-contact people here were using the beaver to manage the water supply. So the, the beaver, again, um, becomes extremely important. You become intertwined uh, with them. Your lives depend on them. Bottom of page seven, um, archaeologist Grace Morgan wrote that Bison were the staff of life, though beaver were at the core of a profound ideological framework which prized the role of the beaver in the stabilization of water resources. The relationship between the species and plains people is so deep that religious practices involving beaver medicine bundles continue to hold deep significance among the Nitsitapi people, even in the 21st century. Using this way of life, the reliance on the bison herds, and the beaver, uh, ensuring sustainable drinking water. And there were also areas that could be thought of as gardens or groves or orchards where they would pick medicines, uh, therapeutic herbs. And this is uh, indigenous oral history that's being more and more backed up by botany. And there are examples of this in... Uh, around Winnipeg, uh, the Broken Heads Wetlands uh, Boardwalk uh, it has an interpretive trail through one of these areas. Um, I think there's also a uh, history of um, medicine growing in Riding Mountain, but they're sort of all around wherever the conditions are favorable. These would have been uh, regularly used and um, intentionally cultivated and, and managed areas. The top of page eight he says the plains bison hunters not only averted the hardship endured by their neighbors in the eastern woodlands, but also appear to have flourished in the centuries prior to contact. Physical anthropologists describe the 19th century bison hunters as, as the tallest in the world, and they're incredibly fit. Um, they don't have horses at this time. They're doing everything on foot. Uh, they're hunting bison on foot. They're maintaining a continental system of communication and trade. Uh, on foot, these people are, pe are pedestrian. Um, so they practiced uh, persistence hunting. And this, to my understanding, is like the traditional human way of hunting. The way that humans hunt as of like a massive amount to do with our evolution and how we developed uh, physically and why we developed the way we do. The thing about like humans is we can pursue prey over vast distances without becoming tired, or at least not tiring as easily as the, as the prey that we're pursuing. Largely forgotten in the 20th century, the latter involves the pursuit of prey on foot until the hunter overtakes the animal, which has been immobilized by exhaustion and hyperthermia. Like there's still people in Africa who practice this. We're humans are able to are able to go a long time chase, chasing something not as a sprint but like as like like a long distance runner think of running marathons that kind of thing. Here's something for uh, for Jill in Saskatchewan Samuel Akus whose son was a world famous runner 
ran down deer from Moose Mountain to the Coppell Valley in the early 20th century. Two-hour drive, so like 200 kilometers? Something like that? Yeah, we're talking about people like pursuing pursuing prey, someone pursuing a deer for hundreds of kilometers. I guess the thing that works for persistence hunting is that like a deer... Uh, animals like deer are, are built for sprinting and not for, uh, not for long distance, not for maintaining that level of, of, uh, of exertion for such a long time. We're not as fast as a deer, obviously, but, uh, a deer will get tired and drop from exhaustion, or at least we'll, we'll be able to get within range to be able to like shoot it with a bow or something like that. Spear. Pretty cool. Uh, bottom of page eight uh, wants to note that although people on the plains were in good health and were incredibly fit, uh, there still was disease among them. Tuberculosis was endemic, not to such an extent as smallpox, as the smallpox was. It wasn't as deadly anyway. It wasn't so much of a concern as smallpox was when it arrived, but they did have TB here. And uh, TB has been... Uh, traced back to originating within bison herds. Bottom of page eight, it says the infection was much more common in the period 1200 to 1399 CE than the centuries before and after. Something to do with climate there, putting stress on the environment, putting stress on the people, on the on the bison. Um, page ten now. Uh, top of page ten, the bovine form and the human form are. Indistinguishable, so it's the same. It's the same disease. So, uh, with TB, uh, the disease is is originates in the bison herds and then is passed to the human population through the consumption of uh, meat from the diseased animals. Middle of page ten. Uh, veterinary studies from the 20th century have shown that under conditions of stress, bison are extremely susceptible to TB, and the consumption of dried meat from infected animals could easily spread to humans. Uh, bottom of page 10. Uh, for the prehistoric people of the northern Great Plains, the nutrition afforded by reliance on bison as a staple food held TB and probably other diseases triggered by privation at bay. As connection of the region to the modern world system took hold, introduced diseases, the most virulent of which was smallpox, did not discriminate between the healthy and the underfed. All were equally susceptible to sickness and death. As infections spread from the old world to communities on the Canadian West that, in some cases, had never encountered a European in the flesh. The introduction of old world diseases, the most deadly of which was smallpox, almost completely overshadowed TB as a significant burden of disease. Um, I think it's important to note that the the spread of disease here in this case is triggered by stress, privation, um, that the environment that people and animals live in contributes to their susceptibility of disease. Someone who is underfed is more susceptible to, to disease. Someone who uh, is under stress is more susceptible to, to illness. People and, and animals under conditions of privation and stress become sick easier. That's something that's interesting while we're living through the global COVID p- 
pandemic and and thinking about how pandemics start and spread uh, historically. Um, if you are thinking about how like the COVID pandemic started and where it came from, these are illnesses that um, that originate in uh, animal populations, livestock po- populations, basically, and in livestock populations that are heavily concentrated. Uh, Like in industrial farming, these are places where if one animal is sick, the sickness spreads very quickly. And then that that sickness can very easily spread to the people who are in contact with those animals. So like farm workers, um, people who who eat the meat, that kind of thing. This is like traditionally how pandemics start. And, um, probably very most likely the way that the, the COVID one started. And I think that takes us to the end of chapter one on page 10. Um, thanks for reading along with me in the chapter. Next week we'll have chapter two, the early fur trade, terrestrial dislocation and disease. Chapter one was pretty short. Chapter two is too, but there's, as you can see, like there's lots these are pretty dense. There's lots of info uh, on any of these. And you can take any of these topics and, you know, start uh, Googling them and you'll be, uh, you'll be down some rabbit holes pretty, pretty soon. Um, for research, I guess I'm just like Googling stuff and basically looking at the Wikipedia and... Uh, I think that's good enough for us right now. We're not academics. No one's grading us on this. Uh, you can check the sources of Wikipedia. They're at the bottom of the page. Uh, we're not tracking them down super hard. Uh, as I said, we're we're just ordinary people reading a book and trying to understand what it says. So, yeah, that's about it. We'll see you in a week for Chapter 2. Bye-bye.